Today's episode is a good one. I am joined by TJ Mims from San Jose, California. It's nice and warm there. We both had a little bit extra time for activities this morning. Unfortunately, we both had technology problems, but it's a gentle, subtle reminder to stop and smell the roses. How often do you just go out of your way to make time to visit with people in the morning? And I know I say this a lot, but I think it's important. So if you hear this, just uh, get off your butt, call somebody up, visit with them. You don't need to be planning for business or anything. Just talk. I think it's important. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Lifestyle Chase, Season 2. This podcast features high performers who have found a way to live their best life while balancing their health, wellness, friends, and family. I'm your host, Chris Little. Let's get started. The Lifestyle Chase is brought to you by Yeg Fitness. Yeg Fitness is Edmonton, Alberta, Canada's healthy lifestyle community, creating and supporting active living for all. Check them out online at yegfitness.ca and on social media at yegfitness. Welcome to episode 67 of the Lifestyle Chase. I am joined today by TJ Mims. How are you doing? I'm doing great, man. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining me. We had a few technical difficulties, but nothing, nothing holds us back. Oh, definitely not. So what's your morning routine like? Like you wake up pretty early. What do you do every day? Uh, my wake up time typically is about 4 a.m. Uh, I wake up early because it takes me a little while to get going, but I, I start work about 6 and um, it takes me about 20 minutes to get to work. So generally what I'll do is I'll wake up at 4 a.m., pop a coffee, uh, probably sit on the couch for about 20 minutes while I sip on that and then I just get ready. I'll go upstairs. I'll shower. I'll tiptoe around to make sure I don't wake anybody up because I got two kids and a wife sleeping. Um, take my shower, um, get all my stuff for the day, whether it's a protein shake or a meal, all my clothes. If I'm going to work out, um, I like to bring a second pair of clothes just to make sure I don't smell when I'm training my clients. And then, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, not too hectic. I give myself plenty of time, but I get up pretty early. Yeah. What's your favorite uh, lift in the gym? Favorite lift is probably the one I can't do that often, which is deadlift. So I've got a little bit of a spine condition called degenerative disc disease, and um, I found out about it around 18 months ago. Um, Doctors told me that it was a matter of uh, when, not if, it would start giving me trouble. And um, I find out it's hereditary. My mom has it. And... uh, I didn't know, so I found out the hard way and uh, had a little herniation of the L4, L5. And so uh, they basically told me, hey, um, you probably want to steer clear of doing too much axial compression. Squats and deadlifts are okay in moderation, but you probably want to listen to your back. And so um, I don't deadlift that often anymore. Maybe recently I haven't been doing it much at all, but I just started um, in the last month or so, and I do about once every two weeks. What was your first thought when you got that news? It just probably came out of nowhere, hey? Oh, it hurts. Um, so I was I was very young in my uh, my powerlifting career, and I call it a career very loosely. It was more of a I, – I got into it. Um, I was really into it, actually, and um, I was planning on doing more meets. And I did my first one about six months prior to me hurting myself, so it's actually a shock that I didn't hurt myself while training for it. Um, 
yeah, so it, it, it was a shock. And um, luckily for me, I had a, I had the imaging done. I had the MRI done on my back. And um, I had a lot of doctors that gave me second, third, fourth, and fifth opinions um, because I was fortunate to, to work in radiology at Stanford. And so I, I knew a lot of doctors that would you know, give me opinions um, that were very highly trained. They were, they were musculoskeletal trained doctors that worked for like sports teams in the Bay Area. So um, they knew what they were doing. And so I trusted them a little bit more than my, my Kaiser doctors because they uh, were just general radiologists. And they're not known for having a keen eye on this stuff. They just kind of know a lot. Uh, a little bit about a lot and i wanted someone who was a little bit subspecialty trained to take a look at it so they, they basically echoed the exact same thing um amongst all the opinions that i got and they're like yeah this is what we would suggest and um i went to my my uh, former boss um he was the chief of um, uh, msk musculoskeletal imaging at the time and he used to work for the niners and he also lifts so he understands and so i wanted someone with that background that perspective to basically weigh in and say hey you probably should or should not do this. Um, I kind of listened to him a little bit more. So, yeah. If one of your clients had the same thing happen, like what would be your one piece of advice for them? Uh, train in a way that allows you to feel good rather than using your ego to continue lifting and possibly hurt yourself. Because, you know, you may in the moment want to train and do a lift that you love. But ultimately, if you think about it, is it worth it down the road? Is it worth it to not be able to stand up without pain or possibly run around and play with your kids? You don't want to feel like you're 50 or 60 years old when you're only 30 or 40. That's that's not what we get into fitness for. So um, there's always a way to get around these ailments and you got to choose exercises that, you know, obviously don't make or magnify your problems. I mean, you know, they don't, they don't make them any worse. So. Yeah, agreed. So tell me a bit about your entry into the fitness industry like what what sparked the idea that you wanted to have a career in this and just completely change what you're doing for work um so i think it was 2012 i had just gotten married and uh if, I, if i'm gonna go back in time and give you the whole backstory i recall uh First, let me go back to my teenage years. Uh, I played football and baseball and ran track um, in high school. I was casually in the gym. I didn't know what I was doing like most teenagers. Um, and that continued on probably until my mid-20s. I'm 34 years old for some uh, some context here. Um, and I honestly would hop on program, program. I would never stick to anything. Uh, I didn't know anything about nutrition. I didn't know anything about supplementation. I didn't know anything about progressive overload. I didn't know what I was doing, but I just wanted to go to the gym because, you know, you want to go to the gym and look good. And um, I've, I've always had that in the back of my mind that, you know, I, I, I was athletic, but I didn't really have the body that fit it and I didn't know what to do. So in 2012, after I had gotten married, which my wife jokes with me about a lot, she's like, why did you choose to start working out after we got married? She's like, don't you usually want to do that prior to getting married so you can get the girl? I was like, you know what? It's, you know, I'm a little backwards, so I'm going to do it this way. And um, uh, there was another motivation that was pushing me to do it. Uh, at the time, I actually had an interest in uh, going through the police academy and becoming a cop. And um, I realized I needed to be in better shape for that. And, uh, I was pretty much in terrible shape. I was 27 years old and uh, I had just started working or stopped working in uh, restaurants and bars. Um, 
probably about two years prior. And uh, if you've ever worked in the service industry, working in restaurants and bars, you eat a lot of terrible food and you drink a lot. And um, my body showed it. I felt terrible. I looked terrible. Um, and I wanted to change things. So I started working out. And um, it was it started with me hopping on some uh, bodybuilding.com canned program, which, you know, they're not great. But, you know, at least they get your foot in the door to do something, do anything. And the program was, you know, very regimented. And I followed it to a T. And after the initial 12 weeks, you know, I went from a very skinny fat, 195 pounds to about 165-ish. I lost about 30 pounds. And that was pretty much my base of muscle that I had um, prior to actually getting into this. And um, I actually got really, really into it just because I saw the results. It was really motivating. So um, I would oftentimes, after that program was over, I would bury my head after work and pretty much uh, as much literature and as much uh, research and uh, I would pick the brains of people that I knew that I trusted that they would steer me in the direction of the right people and luckily um, they pointed me in the direction of people that are have pretty prominent in the fitness industry and uh, there's there's so many of them that I can't count but you know guys that generally are all grounded in research and evidence-based and um, you know you could easily go down the rabbit hole and probably start picking up stuff from people who, you know, don't have the best reputations in the industry, but they're, you know, they're wildly popular with the uh, general public. Um, and, and luckily I did not, did not. So um, because of their approach and because they were very science-based, um, I often tried to dig up as much information as I could to learn how to do this, how to build muscle, how to lose fat, what about supplementation, what works, what doesn't, uh, what's useless, what do people often use that they shouldn't. Um, studying nuance, which is something that I always tell my clients not to worry about, but I was studying nuance about it and it just really intrigued me and I, I didn't want to um, stop doing it. And then I realized probably about six months in, um, uh, six months after the actual initial 12-week program that uh, this was something that I wanted to do long-term. Uh, this is something that really has my attention. This really has my interest. And um, I could see myself doing this, you know, for a career. And um, that pretty much began my transition out of working at Stanford and uh, beginning a side hustle, as I called it at the time, into what is now three years of a full-time business. And um, that is pretty much it. I like it. Um, how did you, what was your self-talk like when you were like, what was your, your lightest weight? You said like 160, 170? Probably about 165, I think, when I finished my first cut. And um, so what do you so weigh that, now? Uh, I stepped on the scale this morning at 195. So that's so about 30. Fairly substantial. 30 it's, I mean, it sounds substantial. I mean, you ask some guy who's never lived before and you tell them you've been lifting for about seven or eight years and they're like 30 pounds. That's not a lot, but it really is in the grand scheme of things, understanding what the body's limitations are and how much we can truly gain um, on a year to year basis. So I'm averaging probably four pounds a year. Yeah. Four pounds. Um, I probably made a lot more my first year because I think after my first or second uh, bulk and then I cut after that, I think I was down to like 180-ish. Yeah. So I probably, I gained a lot up front and obviously, you know, it tapers off as you get more experienced and your body becomes more acclimated to the stimulus. So, um, yeah, so about 30 pounds in, in about seven and a half, eight years. And yeah. So how did the, the self-talk kind of, uh, change? Like, 
from you when you were at your your after your first cut to you now today my self-talk yeah like your your inner voice like i, I think we all kind of go through different phases where it's like we we're, we say things that we can do and then all of a sudden we go through all this shit and we make this progress and then all of a sudden we're saying totally different things and i'm just curious to the contrast for you yeah i mean it's a complete shift in mentality that's for sure because it was one something i had never accomplished before in my life so i always wanted to be in shape and when you finally get in decent shape you're like wow i i didn't ever see this coming i, I didn't think i could do this and so for me, that in itself was motivating enough to continue the cycle. And because I was learning about a lot and I felt I knew how to do it and, you know, through trial and error and, you know, treating yourself like a lab rat, you start to realize what works and what doesn't. Um, it was just something that I knew that I wanted to do. And so um, part of me was I want to get to a certain size that I envisioned probably when I was younger and that is pretty much what my goal was going to be. Like, I don't care if it takes two years. I don't care if it takes five or six. I don't care if it takes 10. I'm going to do it. So um, I've been on this, you know, fitness journey for the last seven years. And for me, it, it's just been one stepping stone into another. And, you know, it's been great. It's been great. I, I love it. And, um, yeah. It's, it's rewarding and more than just physique, as I'm sure you'd agree. But then we, we're doing our own journey and we're uh, like paving the trail for our clients. Mm -hmm. But our clients often take for granted the fact that like we have a lot of like demons and challenges and obstacles that we're trying to overcome at the exact same time as them, whether they're brand new, whether they've been like in the gym for years, like a couple years, whatever. But like yeah. how, how do you communicate to them to get them to really understand that like you're you're in this together yes yeah, so i think the best thing i could do for my clients is to be completely transparent about what um i struggle with and uh, it, to some degree it makes you more relatable and i think people trust you a little bit more because it shows a vulnerability that maybe they don't expect from a trainer um you know just talking about hey i have trouble with nighttime eating too or I uh, sometimes, you know, have this, you know, body dysmorphia where I feel like, you know, I look a lot worse than I really do. Um, I don't, but you know, I'm, I don't, I don't think I do. Um, but you know, just being very open about stuff like that um, will help a client because you can one use your personal experience to help them guide them through the journey, and two, it allows them to see that they're not going to be perfect because even the people that they look up to to help get them into shape are not perfect. And there are gonna be bumps on the road that you're gonna hit and you're gonna to have to be okay with it. Like, you know, people will freak out over the smallest stuff, not even not even big issues, not even like, I'm constantly just like, you know, looking at myself and hating how I look or you know, people with the negative self-talk and all that stuff. But like small stuff, like I gained a pound from yesterday and you know, um, explaining to them uh, how the body works and how fluctuations in water weight and body weight can happen, you know, way more than one pound on a day-to-day -day basis and what contributes to that. And one of the things that contribute to it that I always tell people, I'm like, it's stress related. It could be stress related. Like, you know, obviously you ate everything the same and you're worrying like crazy about this. Maybe you're not sleeping enough. Maybe you're not recovering, but you know, you can hold water because it's a lot of body on your, or a lot of stress on your body. It's just the way it is. 
So my suggestion to you would be to calm down, relax, realize it's part of the process and realize you didn't gain a pound of fat in one day. Like you ate your normal diet. Um, and just small stuff like that will help go a long way. Um, and I find it a lot more with my newer clients because obviously you have to break them of all the old thought processes and mentalities that they had. Um, but you know, it's, it's something I enjoy because I think helping people through their struggles is probably one of the most overlooked aspects of being a coach. And one of the other overlooked aspects, I believe, which plays into them actually listening to you when it comes time to actually explain why your body did what it did is a trust between coach and trainee. And I I always tell my my trainees, uh, even before I start working with them, and I I, I lay it down uh, as simply as I can on the table, I say, if you don't trust me, if you don't have 100% trust in me or whatever trainer you work with, do yourself a favor and find someone that you do because you're not going to get the results you're looking for. If you can't trust me, you're probably not going to listen to me. And ultimately you're not going to get the desired effect that you want. Um, so you need to make sure that you're comfortable with who you work with. And if not, um, you'd be better suited probably looking elsewhere. Uh, and honestly, it, it's a, a, a startling kind of admission sometimes. And I think people are a little bit taken back, but uh, for the most part, like I think everyone appreciates that. Um, because it is transparency, and I think transparency is huge, whether it's about your business and the way that you work with people or whether it's the approach you have towards fitness. I agree, and you can use transparency with just about anything where you're communicating, and it's important, and that's that's why authenticity is such a such a buzzword these days because it leverages progress because people are able to actually lean on each other because they're open with uh, what... Uh, what they need from from their friends from their family and what they have to offer yeah so looking back to let's say like when you were 12 13 years old what was life like like what did you think was cool what did you do what was school like mm-hmm. uh so i went to a catholic high school um 12 13 i wasn't even in high school so i went to a catholic grade school and um i played all the sports i played basketball football soccer ran track you know pretty much everything that your school has to offer i was athletic i played club ball year uh, not year round but you know throughout probably like about eight months out of the year um for baseball loved baseball growing up um as a kid um i was relatively active um i was fortunate to grow up um in an in a neighborhood that had a lot of kids that were my age or around my age. So my, my backstory is my dad was in the military and um, he was in for 20 years and we lived at this place in California called Moffett Fields where essentially it's just families on top of families that are all in the military, but they're all around the same age and they all generally have kids. And so we all lived in this nice community with a big open park where you can play football, baseball, a big neighborhood game of manhunt with like 20 people. And I guess I was very active growing up. I was running around all the time. Um, uh, 12 years old, I wasn't into weights yet. I don't think I got into weights probably until about 14 or 15 when I was playing football. Um, and as during my childhood, probably the biggest part of my childhood aside from playing sports was I was a big time video game nerd. Um, I loved video games playing, uh, playing video games growing up. And 
uh, to this day, if I had more time and I knew that it wouldn't be detrimental to my time spent with my family or my business, I would play it. But, um, you know, I have two systems at home. I've got a PlayStation and a Switch that I never touch. Um, I think I buy them out of habit thinking like, hey, when I get a free moment, maybe I'll play a little bit. But ultimately, I really don't play much at all. I don't have the time for it. So um, do I miss it? Yeah. But I also understand that there's priorities that you have to place. And family and business are number one above all. And if you start prioritizing something like that um, over your family and your business, then I think you've got your priorities a little bit out of whack. Absolutely. When you did play games, what was your favorite game? Legend of Zelda. I like it. Which one? Uh, so my favorite Legend of Zelda game was Ocarina of Time on the Nintendo 64. Um, for those that don't know me very well, I actually have uh, a Legend of Zelda Triforce tattoo on my leg, so which uh, will be expanded upon. It, you know, it was a big part of my childhood, and I'm, I'm not afraid to, to talk about that. I know fitness uh, and video games don't really go together. Um, but I'm very open about like what I love and I'm not going to, you know, say like just because I'm in the fitness, like, Oh, video games are bad. It's like, no, no, no. I loved them when I was growing up. It was a big part of my childhood and I, I have nothing but happy memories about it. Um, but, uh, Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time most likely is my number one. Number two would probably be the original on the, uh, on the original Nintendo. Um, I didn't like the second game. I think it was Link. Uh, I didn't like that one. And then, um, Recently, uh, I've got the Nintendo Switch, so I bought Breath of the Wild, which, from what I've experienced, is the most expansive and vast game I've ever played in my life, and it's it's amazing, yet it's so large that I've literally had the game for two years, and I'm like one-third of the way through it. <laughs> um, that's, how, that's, that's how little time I have to spend on this, so... Um, it's one of those things where, like, if I have a free moment, I'm like, yeah, I could pick it up and play, but... I understand it's also going to take a long time to figure out what I'm doing before I actually make any progress. So I'm like, eh, better not. So yeah. I don't have I don't have hours on end to play. Totally. So then going further through your childhood, like uh, you get into high school, what were you thinking that you wanted to do when you grew up, when you were like 16, 17? My favorite movie as a teenager was Jerry Maguire. I don't know if you've seen it, but... Jerry Maguire was a sports agent for football players, and I actually loved that idea um, of because I, I didn't think I, I had realistic expectations. While I loved playing sports, I never thought I was going to be a professional athlete. I knew I wasn't good enough to excel to that level. Um, it was just sad because you know you could always you know overcome you know talent deficiencies by hard work um, if you put your mind to it. You know the whole everything's you know, achievable if you just put your mind to it, that cliche. But, um, you know, I, I ultimately just said, like, you know, realistically, it's not going to happen for me. But I would love to be in the sports industry or or to some degree work in fitness or sports or something related to athleticism. And um, I really like the idea of being the person that represented players, um, not because it was just, you know, involved with football players and baseball players, but I understand it's also a very lucrative industry to get into. You can make a lot of money. So, um, and what kid at that age doesn't want a lot of money? So um, sometimes they chase that more than they actually chase what they're really passionate about. And so um, in that time, I wanted to be a sports agent. And then um, I quickly realized that it required me going to law school. And I said, eh, better not. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's awesome. So yeah. like when you graduated high school, what was the plan? Uh, graduate high school, I really didn't have 
a lot of direction at 17 when I graduated. I, I went to San Jose State. Um, I actually didn't declare a major at first, um, and I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I ultimately settled on advertising, which um, I felt I wanted to do. I was very intrigued by it, but ultimately I never really cracked the industry for a couple of reasons. One was because I graduated in 2008, and in 2008, the economy in the United States was in the shitter. It was terrible. Um, and so no one was hiring, especially in the advertising industry. And by the time they were in 2010, this phenomenon that we all use now on a daily basis, we're probably using it, you know, every spare moment we have called social media took off and it changed the advertising game completely. So everything that I had learned in college was practically obsolete. Like my knowledge of what I went to school for pretty much could not be applied for most of the things that, you know, advertisers were trying to do these days. And so um, it would either require someone taking a leap of faith that I could learn on the job or me going back to school and um, taking courses on uh, branding and social media for, um, or branding and advertising for social media, and which I had no experience with. Uh, and I was like, I'm not going back to school now. So um, that's when I stepped foot into uh, working at Stanford that lasted uh, seven years. So how'd that happen? Like, what was the catalyst to stepping foot in Stanford? Stepping foot in Stanford was, hey, um, I don't want to work in the service industry anymore. Because yeah. I, was, I was working behind a bar. I was working late nights. Uh, again, I was not treating myself the best. I wasn't eating great. I wasn't, um, I was drinking a lot. Like, I, when you work at a bar and you work, at a private bar with owners that actually encourage you to drink while you're working. It's not necessarily the, the best environment to take care of yourself. So I found myself uh, bathing in liquor way more than I needed to, uh, indulging in horrible restaurant food. I mean, delicious restaurant food, but you know, stuff that just wasn't good for you. And I wanted to get out and I didn't care where I went at that point. Literally, I was like, I'm 20, I think it was it was about 10 years ago now. I was about 24, about 24 years old. I'm like, I just need a job. I need a normal, steady job. And I was fortunate that I had a friend that worked at Stanford that was vacating a position because he was getting a promotion. And uh, he was very highly regarded. <laughs> so when he said, hey, I've got a guy that might be a good fit for this position, um, his boss listened. And she kind of snuck me in the back door. She's like, hey, Joe, bring TJ in. Let's get him interviewed. I'll run him through some tests and, you know, let's see if, if he's good. Then we'll, we'll sneak him in the door. And um, and that's ultimately what happened. And I, I ended up getting that job and I moved into a different position about a year and a half later. And I stayed in that position until I ultimately left about five and a half years later. Um, it, it, honestly, it was, it was literally just a job at first for me. It was like, I just need something, something steady because, you know, I, I want to get married. Um, I obviously can't afford to buy things or support a wife if I don't have a steady job. And um, it wasn't things weren't going the way I had envisioned and I just wanted something steady and safe. And, uh, it did serve that purpose. It was, it was a good safe job. Um, it wasn't exciting, but you know, it, it paid the bills for a few years and, um, it got me on my feet. It's important. And I like that you worked at like a bar slash restaurant because I, I think everybody probably should spend some time in some form of the service industry, especially when they're working in fitness. So like, 
for for context, I worked at a bar for a full year and it taught me so much like about people and about sort of like putting yourself in somebody else's shoes and about uh, patience and about hard work because it's like it's late, late nights and it's often after a full day of work. So what are three things that you learned from your time? Uh, working in the service industry, I think one of the important things that I learned was you need to keep your cool when things get chaotic. And if you've worked in the service industry, you know it can be rapid fire. You can be overwhelmed and stressed and you still are serving people and you know your tips do pretty much rely on you giving good service and being polite. So uh, in the face of that you know chaos, can you maintain your cool and still your, keep your composure and, and take care of uh, everything as you normally would if you're a little bit more calm? Um, the second thing was probably patience because like in the fitness industry, um, probably more prevalent in the service industry, but in the fitness industry, you can come across some customers or clients that are difficult and they're difficult to work with. And um, just like customers at restaurants and bars that, you know, you know, you always have that one customer that just doesn't like something or their, their foods or everything's wrong with their food or their drink wasn't made right or someone's too loud by them and they just want to complain. You know, they're just there to complain and you're just like, all right, fix it or I'll do whatever I can to make them happy. Um, so that helps with, you know, dealing with sometimes clients that are a little bit more high maintenance, uh, require a lot more attention than say the average one does. Um, and just kind of just keeping your cool about it and, you know, just trying to walk them through the process of how this is going to work. Um, what else did I take from the industry? Um, so this one's probably a no brainer, but like it, it I learned how not to eat like you you start to see after a while that eating and drinking a certain way will have a negative impact on your body your health your mindset and um, you know when I was done working in the service industry I wasn't in a good place like mentally physically I, I just I felt horrible and I knew something had to change so um, just having that experience of this is what it's like if you go ahead and eat this and drink this on a daily basis and you repeat the cycle for two, three, four years, it's going to have a negative impact on your health. And ultimately, I think everyone wants to just feel good and look good. Um, so that really drove me into really wanting to change my life completely in terms of how I treated myself and how I and what I put into my body. I think it's important to have experiences like that. Like nobody wants to wish for someone to fail or wish for someone to fall on their ass. But like that's what sort of enables us to know where the guardrails are, like to know where is too far in one direction, where is too far in the other direction and what path that we have to set for ourselves. So a lot of people will have things that like they they know what they need to have in their life. And they know that they can't have too much of one thing or that they need more of another thing. What are like four things that you need in every week to kind of stay on the path that, that you've learned that you want to be on? I'll start with the uh, first thing I do in the morning, which is coffee. Um, that actually just is my catalyst for keeping my energy high and my focus sharp. Um, uh, let's see, what do I need? Organization's huge for me. Um, so uh, 
a lot of people like to joke about what my calendar looks like because it is packed um, with every little detail of my day. Um, I have my training. I've got my clients' training. I have business administrative work, all in different calendars, by the way. Um, I've got family. I've got my calendar, which is basically something I only see. Um, I've got a variety of things. And when you look at my calendar, it's like literally like there's maybe a couple gaps. Like I, I put notes on there to, hey, I have to pick up my kids or I have to return my son's library book or I've got to go pick up dry cleaning, stuff like that. And um, organization for me is probably what keeps me sane because I'm constantly thinking throughout the day, especially when I'm with clients. And, and when I'm with clients and I think of, oh, I've got to do that later, um, I pull open my phone real quick and just write it in notes because I know if I don't, because there's so much going on, I'm going to forget it. And ultimately that leads a little bit to a little bit more stress. If I, if I forget that, you know, this is what I had to do today and I forgot to, and I got to push it off till tomorrow. And you know, if you keep pushing stuff off, you have more tasks that are going to pile up as well. And it just becomes like an overwhelming task of things just that you haven't gotten done. And so I'm very schedule oriented. Um, let's see. I think eating healthy is probably something else that helps me get through the week. Um, eating in a way that I feel maximizes on my ability to focus, my ability to train, and ultimately just feeling good at the end of the day. Because when I get off of work, I still have clients that I have to work with, whether they're online or whether I have clients that are texting me. I've got two little ones at home that I have to take care of to make sure that I'm sharp when they're when they're around. Because you know, if dad's tired and the kids are getting out of hand, you know. Um, it's going to be a little bit harder for me to actually step in and make sure that they're behaving properly. And um, of course, for my wife as well, because she deserves to see me at least somewhat coherent when she gets home from work. Um, because more times than not, I actually get home from work before she does. I'm an early guy and I get off around like two o'clock and um, I work a couple evenings a week, but ultimately I'm home when she's home. Um, I'm home much earlier and then she gets home and I'm already here and I've already taken care of the kids, got dinner ready, went grocery shopping playing Mr. Dad pretty much, um, Mr. Mom, Mr. Dad, whatever you want to call it. So just doing all the, the small logistics and, um, you know, it keeps me sane. Um, and then the last thing, and, and it's a thing that I, I stress um, to my wife and I'm a little bit more transparent about these days is self-care and, and self-care could be uh, a lot of things. It, it, it branches off from just treating yourself good by eating food. It's, it's, you know, taking time for yourself to decompress um, so you can have like a reset. Um, you know, if you, for myself, if you have a lot of thoughts that go in your head and you struggle sometimes to find the balance between family and work and leisure, and you know, that time to decompress, um, finding that balance and having someone to talk to, my therapist, is a great outlet for me. It keeps me mentally sane. And um, I know a lot of people don't like talking about it, like, but, you know, I think mental health is a huge thing that I think we overlook. I think, um, you know, when I start telling people that, you know, I go to a therapist once a week, they're like, why? Like, you're not crazy. And I'm just like, it has nothing to do with being crazy. It has everything to do with me making sure that everything, all the thoughts inside my head are a little bit more organized and I can have someone help, you know, talk me through, you know, the healthy way to kind of get through how chaotic life can be sometimes and understanding that there's balance and how to achieve that the best way without sacrificing work or family or leisure 
um, to ultimately just be the happiest person that you could be. So I always tell them it's preventative. Like I need someone to talk to because it'll help keep me sane. It'll help keep me moving. It'll help keep me happy. Um, and I think that's, you know, I think a lot more people should talk to therapists. I really do. Um, but unfortunately there's this taboo around the, the word mental health. So. Yeah, I'm on board with that. I would totally advocate for anybody to see a therapist. Like it doesn't, you don't need to feel called to see a therapist. You don't need to have had something happen. You can totally do preventative mental health, just like you go and you do workouts in the gym or you try to get more, more vegetables. And like, honestly, it, it comes down to with social media, like you were in advertising, social media came in, then boom, advertising completely changed and how it was done. And then all of a sudden that social media took over how we communicate with people. Like we can do a tough, tough post like something that that takes a lot to to type out and a lot of people will leverage this to get to get some some traction with what their new program that they're going to release but say it's like somebody's looking for connection and so they they talk about something deep and meaningful and it's very uncommon at this point for someone to like go over to their house or, or whatever because we feel that full circle feeling because of what Instagram and Facebook and all that stuff is. Like, you know, somebody can be like, hey, I got married. And then everybody's like, 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 like. Nobody goes over yeah. and they, they're, they're not like, hey, I got your flowers because uh, my mom told me that you got married. So I needed to convey my excitement for you by connecting with you. And when somebody's like, hey, I, I quit my job. Then everybody's like, 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 and nobody ever goes and says, hey, like, I, do you need me to uh, bring you some food for the week? Like, I know you're, you're going to be hustling for new work. Like, it's all these things. It's crazy. We take them for granted. Yeah, I think there's a, it's, it's, it's big right now because a lot of people I feel are disconnected from the personal relationship side of things because of social media. Like it almost feels it's like we're numb to the fact that social media has kind of desensitized how we interact with each other and how, you know, you sometimes just hitting a like button or a quick comment um, isn't enough for the people that are really truly close to you and that you care about. And um, I think I feel, I feel like it puts a little bit of a wedge and creates a little bit of distance that we, we, never had before social media i was i saw a lot more of my friends prior to social media becoming a big thing and, and maybe it was a product of me being in college and having a lot more time on my hands um because we all have families now and we all have jobs and but you know even so i i feel that if we were if we had all the time in the world to see each other i feel it wouldn't happen nearly as much because there's this ability to connect with people via social media and to a degree, I feel like we feel that it allows us to not have to see people in person. So um, I'm probably guilty of it as well. I, I think it's uh, one of those things that I probably should uh, try to pull myself away from and make sure that I, you know, when I have time to go see my friends or go see my family, my, my parents, um, instead of just sending them a text. Text isn't social media, but like text is huge. Like people don't even like getting phone calls these days anymore. Like 
have you ever looked at your phone and like you actually got a phone call and you're a little bit annoyed that they didn't text you first? Yeah. Yeah. That's a thing now. It's so weird. It's so weird. It's so, um, and I think it just plays into the whole social media thing too. It, it, it definitely translates over and, um, we just, we're very, in a way we're very selfish with our time now. And so we basically use social media and text to quick reach out, but Hey, I don't know if I'm going to make the time for you. And you know, I, I, I'm, I'm definitely not oblivious to it. I recognize it's a problem, but I think we all could be a little bit better at trying harder to, to reach out, to actually see people more frequently and, and, you know, do things for people that we care about in person rather than just saying, Hey, happy birthday on Facebook. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's why I, I tend to bring this up often with a lot of different podcast guests. The goal is really to just like kick people in the ass and be like, Hey, like check yourself before you wreck yourself. Like <laughs> it is true. I think yeah. oh, so yeah. many different people in our lives, like people's parents, their, their grandparents, their kids, their nieces, nephews, like everybody's guilty of it. It's, it's no sense like pointing fingers, but if we're self-aware enough to be like, okay, so like today I'm just going to make a simple goal of like talking, like having a meaningful conversation with like two people and be that face to face, or maybe I'll like push my, my boundaries and go from text to phone call. Like even just like a voice makes a big difference, but like connecting in person, like the little, the handshakes, the high fives, like all that stuff. If you collect that, like you're collecting Pokemon, like you're going to be living a life of abundance. It's crazy. Yeah. Fulfillment. And honestly, it's, it's weird because I think a lot of people don't recognize just how much fulfillment you can get from actually just making somebody smile, um, going out of your way to do something, even for strangers, just like hold a door open for somebody or, you know, pay it forward and, and buy somebody coffee at the coffee shop that's behind you that you see maybe like a, a mom who's struggling with two kids and like she's frantic and trying to keep her kids corralled and doing stuff like that, just showing appreciation for people and just putting a smile on someone's face. Honestly, it, it's not selfless because it makes me feel good, but I just love seeing people smile. And um, I've actually tried to make it a note, you know, every day I wake up, make one person that you don't know smile today. Yeah. Just have some human interaction. Well, and you talked about the paying it forward at the coffee shop. And that brings me to a story that uh, is pretty special for me. Like being that I'm in the early stages of my fitness business, it's like it goes without saying I'm going to have weeks where it's like, well, shit, like I, I can get groceries, but I can't go to the movie. Like that's how tight, how tight finances can be. And so like there was one day I just needed to pick me up. And, uh, I went through the Tim Hortons drive through and I thought, okay, I'm going to get uh, 10 Timbits and a coffee. That's like six bucks. That'll be fine. We're going to be all right. That'll cheer me up and I'll have a good day. And so I'm going through the drive through and it was like the longest lineup ever. And I had this like black tinted out Audi in front of me and I was like, okay, well, I mean like that guy's probably buying for his company or something. Like, I wonder what his day's like. And then we're proceeding along and I'm thinking about like, oh, okay, like what am I going to do with my day? I think like it's essentially when I get a day that's slow with clients, my biggest mission is to make it feel like a productive day because like my business is sustainable. I have enough clients, but I also want to feel like motivated and complete and fulfilled mm-hmm 
on those quiet days as well. And so this was going to be the Kickstarter. We get to the pay point and the dude, like he was at the window in front of me and he looks in the rearview mirror, gives me a nod and a wave. I'm like, oh, okay. And then off he goes. I get up to the window and they're like, yeah, uh, he paid. He paid for you. And I was like, holy shit. Like, so three years ago, this stuff was happening all the time. Like I was working for a company where I would do the coffee runs and the mm-hmm. bill would be like 30 bucks because you're, you're getting coffee for like eight people. You're getting a dozen donuts, all these things. And I wouldn't think twice because oftentimes I'd be sent with a company card or something. But in this moment, that really affected me. I was like, wow, like I, I needed that. But then I like kind of stopped in my tracks. And I was like, okay, I'm going to pay for the bill of the person behind me. I was like crossing my fingers. I was like, don't be more expensive. Don't be more expensive. Don't be more expensive. And it was like 20 cents cheaper than what mine was. But it was just like, even, even though we think we need help or we need somebody to do something for us, there's always, always, always going to be somebody that can benefit from us too. So a lot of people are out there waiting for somebody else to show up for them, waiting for somebody else to acknowledge like the things that, that we have going on. But we also have to show up for the, the other people around us, which is something that's been like very prominent in my life. I, I find that I visit with so many people and have some really deep conversations with people. And that's something that stands out like just as much as uh, we're always going to feel the need for support and connection we also have to like pony up, show up, make the phone call, plan the visit, plan the spontaneous podcast. That's mm-hmm. why I'm so spontaneous about this stuff. Like I was like, you know, I don't need to have a second podcast in this week, but I'm just going to because I feel like it and I'll feel better. And I'm sure TJ will feel better. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you. Thank you for having me, man. Well, it's it's good. It's uh, it's helping us feel that abundance. We're like learning more about each other, like how how else would we have this opportunity? And then our friends are going to listen to this and be like, damn, like that, those guys got a little bit insightful on that one. Hey. Yeah. Yeah, they did. Absolutely. And quite honestly, it feeds into the, I didn't have work today because I'm actually staying home to drop my kids off at school and all that, but I feel the need to be productive. And yeah. so this is a great kickstart to my day doing a podcast and then, you know, I'll do my online client check-ins a little bit later, but like, you know, I don't have anything in person today. So I'm like, it could be a really lazy day if I wanted, but no, I'm going to go my day with as much stuff as I can. Absolutely. So I'm curious about, uh, how did you meet your wife? Like, was it like a really romantic first, first encounter? Uh, so I met my wife surprisingly when we were 19. So about 15 years ago. Um, it wasn't anything romantic at first. It was, uh, um, I'm sitting behind her in poli sci class, political science. And I was probably that 19 year old dude who was probably creeping on her. Um, definitely wasn't anything romantic at all. I just, you know, was attracted to her and she would walk into class and she was with some other guy who actually ended up being one of my friends. Um, and, uh, um, one thing led to another after a while with the glory of social media in MySpace, and I started connecting with her and talking to her, and I found out that she actually was good friends with someone that I went to elementary school with, which made it even more complicated because I dated that girl when we almost got into high school. 
So she was good friends with one of my ex-girlfriends from a long time ago. Um, so far removed that you would think it wouldn't be a problem. But she felt compelled to ask her friend if it was okay if she went out on a date with me, which, you know, seems like the right thing to do. But uh, it made me a little nervous because I'm like, oh, wow. So my ex-girlfriend completely has this relationship, you know, in her hands. Like the fate of it is like she could just say, hey, yeah, I don't, I'm not comfortable with you going out with him. But she was cool with it. Um, and then we started dating um, around 20 years old. And... Um, you know, I think we uh, we have lived together since I think 22 or 23. So uh, it only took about two or three years for us to actually move out, get a place, and live together. So we lived together for about four years prior to getting married, um, and uh, you know, the rest is history. We've been married for seven years. We have two kids. Um, you know, and we've been together it feels like forever. Like it's been almost half my life. That's awesome. What's the toughest yeah. thing that you've ever had to do? Like, I'm talking in terms of like Monopoly games, building IKEA furniture, stuff like that. Like, like everyday obstacles that you kind of were like, okay. What things I'm not good at? Uh, well, just like struggle for me. Team um, teamwork stuff. You and your wife having to do something together. Things that took like uh, resilience and grit, but it was just everyday things. Like, do you cook together? I cook. Um, I'm the, I'm the cook in the house and I enjoy cooking and I'm totally, I have to eat some food and you're going to prep it yourself. You better make it good. Why would you feed yourself some subpar food? Um, my wife does not cook much. She bakes, but she does not cook much. Um, she can make, you know, simple meals, but you know, she prefers that I do it and, uh, I kind of do too. <laughs> so, uh, I've taken over the reins of that. But in regards to like struggles that we have, I think the hardest struggle is just juggling just the complexity of being a parent and, you know, being a business owner and all the small logistics that go into everything and remembering everything. And again, that probably ties back into why I'm so organized because I'll forget all of this stuff. But um, on a day-to-day -day basis, I think the hardest thing is remembering every little thing that involves our kids or keeping things up around the house or, um, buying groceries or feeding the dogs. I've got two dogs. Um, and returning library books, um, taking my daughter to ballet, um, remembering what, you know, shoes she wears at ballet, um, and, and all the small stuff. Like sometimes it's just so much that I forget before I take them and I'm like, Oh wait, I got to get that. And it gets a little overwhelming at times, but, um, you know, it's, it's not too bad. It's just, it's just one of those things that I have to be organized with. Otherwise I will forget something. And, um, there's nothing worse than sending your kid to ballet and you forgot her shoes and they don't let her in class. So totally. When you knew yeah. that you're going to be a dad, what was your first emotion or thought or like, what, what were you saying to yourself at that moment? Uh, it was probably something that I, I mean, I always wanted to be a dad, but deep down inside, like you, I kind of felt like I, I, it never would happen. Um, not, not because I really didn't think it was going to happen, but like, it's just one of those things that it's hard to believe until it actually happens to you. Like, um, now I joke about it. Like, I, I think it's comical that, uh, you know, I'm considered a dad and a responsible adult. It's, it's just weird to me because I know what I was like when I was a teenager. And so, and it doesn't feel too long ago. So it's like, am I really 
a dad of two kids. I've got a six-year-old and I really have my own business. It's, it's just weird to me. Um, so, but, but when I first had my kids or I first thought I was going to be a dad, uh, it was actually the day before Father's Day. And um, it was uh, June 15th of 2013 i still remember the day and um i remember going to father's day the next day at my in-laws house and we all got together for a gathering i believe my parents were there as well and um it was it was enjoyable for me to be able to celebrate with my dad that you know it was his father's day and you know it was my father-in-law's father's day but it, it was a little bit painful in a way because i'm like i had so like i wanted to tell somebody but i'm like you know we just found out we can't say anything yet like, we don't even know if, like, this is going to stick because, like, you know, you're so early in the pregnancy that, like, anything could go wrong. Um, and I'm sitting there, I'm like, I'm trying to think to myself, I'm like, all right, this is kind of like a way for me to celebrate Father's Day now because I just found out I'm going to be a dad. This is kind of cool. But um, it hurt because I couldn't tell anybody. So, um, but my initial thought process was, this is amazing. Um, I don't believe I cried. <laughs> I did cry at my, my, uh, my first child's birth, like a little girl. Um, <laughs> So I still remember that day and, um, you know, it's, everyone talks about kids and how much hard work they are and they're 100% true. It, it's, they're 100% right. It's, it's true. It's kids are hard work. It's a lot. It's probably one of the hardest jobs you're going to encounter being a parent. But I also back that statement up with saying it is 100% worth it. It really is. So, um, yeah, that was, that was pretty much how I, how I felt about being a dad. It was, uh, it was exciting. It, it really was. I like that. And that's like, those are the meaningful things in life. Like we could talk about scaling business, but I'm here. I talk about people's kids. I talk about like their loved ones, stuff like that. Cause that's, that's where the real stuff is at. So I'm curious, yeah. who are three people that you really look up to in your life? Three people that I really look up to. Are we talking like Anybody. public figures? Are we talking uh, close personal? Um... Like think of like, uh, tangible life effect on you. So like I can watch a cool video and it might have a celebrity. I'm like, Oh yeah, that was cool. Or I can yeah. meet somebody in my life and my life would have never been the same if I had not had that person in my life. Yeah. So I'm going to be boring with two of my three. Um, and, and, and actually one of them is two people, but you know, it's, you know, you could collectively say they're one person, which is your parents. Um, my parents, you know, have instilled what I believe as very good values in me. Um, and, you know, the way that I was brought up um, in a disciplined environment, because, again, my dad was in the military, um, it kind of molded who I am today. I, I, um, I'm very big on discipline. I'm, I'm very big on manners. Um, yes and no. Uh, yes or no, sir. Please, thank you. Uh, my kids say it all the time and they're, they're young and it, it shocks people sometimes how polite they are but I'm like no it's a, it's a big deal like how you interact with other people uh, says a lot about the person that you are and so um, not to mention just the various other values that they instilled in me whether you know treating people the right way or always doing the right thing um, so that is probably where my foundation comes from um, my number two is is also another pretty obvious answer and that's going to be my wife um she is the glue that holds everything together uh, we talk about those logistics that i often struggle with and she's a master of it she's uh, 
incredible at keeping me um, on task and making sure that I don't forget certain things that I may not be um, doing as frequently as her. Um, and so she's got a little bit more experience with like stuff with that involves the kids because she drops them off at school in the morning and she does a lot of the, um, uh, you know, buying their clothes and making sure that their school stuff is all organized, whether it's fundraisers or book drives or, you know, we've got a PTA meeting this week, um, stuff like that. So she, I often forget a lot of this stuff because quite honestly, I'm, I'm focusing on business. And so I, I, I generally don't give it much thought until she brings it up. Um, but she's also been my rock. She's been incredibly supportive um, throughout our entire relationship. Um, about stuff that's really deeply personal, like issues that I've had, stuff that any person could easily just say, you know, screw it, you're not worth it, you're like damaged goods, I'm just gonna leave you. Um, you know, I, I've struggled, um, I won't say I've struggled with addiction, but I, I have an addictive personality and I've had issues with uh, medications before uh, in my past where I would actually take them far more frequently than I should. And, uh, you know, my wife was there by my side, putting up with my bullshit um, for a long time. And, and she, she dealt with it and she stuck by me and she helped me work through it. And um, I did it to her on multiple occasions. This is dating back to my, probably like my mid twenties and, and probably to about 30, 31, I had some issues. Um, and I'm also transparent about that as well with my clients. I always tell them like, these are, you know, these are struggles that I've had. This is who I am. Uh, I'm not this person anymore, but you know, this could come back. Um, because, you know, if you have that kind of personality, that that's always a possibility. Um, but she's always stuck with me and she's always been supportive. And, um, you know, even though uh, I've made a lot of mistakes, she's never wavered in her confidence that I would actually get through it. And um, I can't thank her enough for, for doing that. So she keeps me grounded. Um, you know, I would say my number three is probably a toss up. If, if I want to go celebrity route, like I, I have a couple people in mind, like one's actually a celebrity. The other one's more of like, like a quasi-celebrity in the entrepreneur world. Um, Your favorite all-time person. Like, I love The Rock. I love everything he stands for. Besides the fact that he's jacked out of his mind um, and he does wildly entertaining things like WWE back in the day and all the movies he's put out. Like, if you ever follow him on social media, the guy just exudes positivity. And he loves making people smile. And I think, you know coming from a guy of that stature, like the impact that he has, like he uses that platform to help people and to show like, this is how we should be interacting with each other on a day-to-day -day basis. Like he'll stop his car cause he sees fans, sorry, not his car, his pickup truck. He'll stop his pickup truck as he's driving. If he sees fans, stop and say hello to them. Like he just does the little things like that. He's a human and he recognizes that. And he's like, I'm not above anybody. This is what I'm going to do. And I know it's going to bring joy to people's lives. So, um, I really just love everything that he's about. Um, I love his work ethic. You know, he, his work ethic is, you know, if you ever seen some of his workouts and like what time he gets up at and you know how he diets, um, the guy's insane. He really is. And, um, I think everyone could probably learn a thing or two from him. I agree. That's a good pick. Um, I like the thing about The Rock that stands out for me is like there's a quote where he's like he uh, he had seven dollars in his pocket or something like that and he didn't he didn't know what he was going to do. And that sticks to me. It like reminds me of my times when I'm like, OK, like what what am I doing? Like 
I used to have a lot more money than this. And like now, now we're uh, budgeting grocery trips and like, we're hoping that the mortgage is going to be paid. And it's like, yeah, you look at people like the rock and he, uh, dabbled in the CFL, like not, not even the, we're talking Canadian football league. And that doesn't get much of a reputation around like North America as much as the NFL does. And that was one of his like obstacles was CFL and seven dollars yep. in his pocket and it's just all these things that i kind of reflect on and yeah so i totally agree that would be one of my people too so he had a rough upbringing like it, it's, it's interesting because he came from nothing and um he's like he exemplifies hard work and uh you know you can come from nothing but you can still make something out of your life which um, i think everyone would agree he he's made something of himself and um He's done pretty well, so that seven bucks in his pocket, I, I don't know if you read his book or not, but that's that's definitely like a big part of his story. Like he was flat broke. Just yeah. Just there was nothing around it. He he was just broke. Well, and you reflect on a lot of the people that each of us would probably look up to and the people that we really think made it. And I'm pretty sure if we sat down and talked to any of them, they had like little moments like that. Like you think to uh, the big CEOs and the like notable figures like Oprah. Oprah has a story like uh, all kinds of people that are we think that we wish we had what they had. But are we willing to do what they had to do to get to where they are now, you know? You cut out a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a little bit. It's 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 a little choppy right now. But I'm going to segue into the last question, and it's the question that I ask all of my guests. And if you mm-hmm. could give one piece of advice on how to live your life to the fullest in the most authentic way, what would that piece of advice be? Be yourself. Don't try being somebody else. You be the best version of yourself. You are perfect the way you are. Don't try to, it's fine to, to look up to people and want to exemplify uh, traits and features that they have, but make it true to you. Um, be authentic. Um, honestly, too many people are trying to be something that they're not, and uh, I feel that they're just robbing themselves of true happiness because they feel that they should be a certain way. And instead of focusing on the things that they currently the things that they love and the, the things that they want to share and they, instead they you know they branch out and they're like well I want to be exactly like this person and they become someone completely different and, and they ultimately find that they're not happy so be the best version of yourself everybody else is already taken I love it so I want to thank you for joining me and uh, we'll catch you soon thank you Chris it was a pleasure man thank you so much As always, make sure to listen to another episode, any episode really. Go through the guest list. There's guests from all over the world. I try to keep it a little bit Edmonton-based and then sprinkle in some people from outside of the city as well. As you know, I'm based out of Edmonton, so that's why it would have an influence from Edmonton. But at the same time, uh, my overarching goal is to make sure that people understand that no matter where you're from, no matter who you are, no matter what you got going on in your life, 
you can be exposed to a lot of great people. You just have to have your eyes open. So I hope you enjoy. Please share on social media and catch you next time.